Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this episode, I spoke with Atlanta City Council member Amir Faroqi about solving problems and shaping his city's future. We talked about what local government can do to address the housing crisis, generational poverty, and respond to the overturning of Roe, as well as how ideas like participatory budgeting can help restore people's faith in government. We also talked about what it's like to have Georgia be in the national political spotlight, how his family helped spark a passion for public service, and the origin of the term care package. Enjoy. Amir Faroqi, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you, Debbie. Great to be with you. Excited to chat. Me too. Me too. And as just mentioned in the intro, you are an Atlanta City Council member. So much to talk about, but I thought maybe we could start with you know, all eyes have been on Georgia for so many reasons. Um, of course, the grand jury investigation, looking into President Trump's effort to get your secretary of state to overturn the election. And then you guys just got through your primary, right, with some really big marquee races nationally, including um, a couple New Dealers, Stacey Abrams running for governor and Jen Jordan for attorney general, a really important job this cycle for all that's going on. So maybe I just kind of would get love. I'm sure listeners would really love your thoughts on kind of just the mood in Georgia and particularly coming out of the primary and heading into the general kind of how are Democrats feeling about things down there? Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, you you mentioned nationalized being on Georgia of late and it's a bit of a foreign feeling, but we're getting used to it. I think, you know, for most of my life, no one looked down here uh, it wasn't particularly competitive. Uh, and then, of course, 2020, well, 2018 was Stacey Abrams' first run for governor, and 2020, Biden taking Georgia and Senators Ossoff and Warnock winning their races. It's proven to be an interesting space now. And uh, yeah, I think Democrats in Georgia are still very much optimistic and fired up. I do think it's a different landscape than two years ago when, you know, arguably a good bit of the vote was an anti Trump vote mm. in 2020. And I think this year will be interesting tell us, you know, how purple the state is, or if it's shading a little bit red. You know, we have an incumbent governor who Stacey ran against the first time. She's uh, running against him again. And, you know, incumbency is tough and tough to beat, that is. And I don't get the sense that Jordans are fully tuned in, even though we just came through primary elections. I don't get the sense that Jordans are fully tuned into the the governor's race yet. I suspect that'll change pretty quickly. Stacey has outraised, she just released numbers yesterday. Um, outraised the governor three to one, four to one, and has you know eighteen point five million in cash on hand. So she's ready to leverage every potential lever she can to to win that race. And I think people are excited to kind of get to the fall and get to the polls. Yeah, that's good for her. That's awesome. And I just a follow up question on this because as you mentioned, of course, Kemp won the Republican primary in that kind of as the whole country is watching. You know, Trump 
endorsing his opponent. Do you take anything from that or in terms of like whether, you know, on the Republican side or is is it, as you said, kind of people aren't really even paying attention to low turnout in a primary? Or does that mean that the, you know, that the Republican electorate are going to be less, you know, maybe right than people fear or something? I wouldn't say they're going to be less right than people and Democrats fear. I, I do think that you know, there's a threat of all politics is local. And I think for a lot of Republicans around the country, we've seen this in a lot of the races where Trump's endorsed. You know, there's there's waning appetite for his involvement or his, his presence. Yeah. And yeah, you have a governor in Georgia who I think from the Republican perspective, you know, kept the economy humming fairly well during COVID. We didn't have significant shutdowns like some other states. And that was a you know controversial call at the time, but he can lean on the fact that the economy's done well. He's done good, a good job recruiting big companies to Georgia. And um, so he's, he has enough to stand on where I think a lot of moderate kind of traditional Republicans are like, look, I, you know, Kim's our guy. He's done a good job. Why switch horses right now? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I want to ask you too about the row ruling and how that's playing out in Georgia, of course, in the, as the backdrop for the political landscape. And I want to flag for people that, you know, it's interesting, I think, for people who are in kind of a blue city and red states, right? And so you fall into that category. I know that this is a, an issue that you have worked on well before this the latest Supreme Court ruling back in 2019, I think it was when your state was looking like they were going to go a direction to pass the fetal heartbeat bill. You created something I think called the Reproductive Justice Commission, yep. commission, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that, and and then also, and then just more recently, your your whole council passed a resolution, right, that directing the Atlanta Police Department to place reports of abortion related care at the lowest possible priority. Kind of, what's the feeling in Atlanta, and kind of, what's your role? How do you see your role as a leader in your city in the wake of this ruling? Yeah, like I think, like a lot of Americans, you know, folks in Atlanta are feeling a mix of rage, frustration, uncertainty. There's, I think, a lot of unanswered questions. And I think as plenty of media outlets have reported and explored, there's a lot of questions that this Roe v. Wade ruling has created that we don't have answers for. Like, for example, what happens to embryos uh, in the IVF process when they're no longer needed or they may not be carried to term? You know, what what happens in emergency pregnancy situations, ectopic pregnancies, et cetera. So all this stuff hasn't been answered. And aside from just the general horrifying reality that people's autonomy and bodily autonomy is being stripped away, there's kind of real world implications right now that Georgia as a state has not yet answered. Our legislature has not reconvened for a special session on it. We have a six-week abortion ban that will likely get passed. But again, that's at a high level. There's not a lot of nuance to it yet. And I suspect we'll see a lot of lobbying at the Capitol from pro-choice and medical experts to try and carve out as much safety and protection as, as we can in the state right now that is governed by a Republican legislature and a Republican governor. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, the city level, you know, there's our hands are somewhat tied. You know, we we can't circumvent state and federal law on this issue. And so you know, as you mentioned a couple of years ago, we set up a reproductive justice commission to look at ways that the city can do what it, it can to support abortion providers, make sure women have access to prenatal care, that information is shared widely, and, and more recently have pushed our DA, our county DA, and our police departments to deprioritize any enforcement that 
maybe come on the books. And yeah, like you've seen a lot of blue cities and red states, DAs and police departments have said, this is not a priority for us at all. And we don't expect to spend any time doing this work. But that doesn't change the fact that this represents a massive stripping of rights for, for women that has an impact for everyone in this country, whether you're man, woman, or identify as something else. And so I, you know, I think we're all in a state of worry right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it is just so crazy that it's such a patchwork, right? From state to state. It's just feels chaotic, frankly, <laughs> and scary. <laughs> so thank you for your work on that and your continued leadership on that. I'd love to ask you a little bit about some of the other issues that have been close to your heart as far back as when you first ran for office in 2017. I know that one of those issues that you talked a lot about at that time of driving you to run for public office was affordable housing, which it feels like has just really continued to get more and more, you know, problematic, frankly, with the pandemic. And it's just an issue across the country and communities across the country. What are you doing on that front? What are some of the solutions that you're trying to pursue to help with this crisis? Yeah, yeah, this is an American problem in almost every corner of the country. And I don't think any city has truly solved it. Maybe Houston, because they have no zoning regulations. So it it is the, the free market is closer to meeting demand there. I think Atlanta... You know, we suffer from some of the same challenges that a lot of other Sunbelt cities have. We're not the same acute space that San Francisco or D.C. or New York have, but you know, home prices and rental rates have skyrocketed in rates that I don't think anyone fathomed. And so, you know, I think the challenge here is, you know, we have a housing, uh, affordable housing trust fund the city puts money into. We have a housing authority that has plenty of land and can and should be building housing on. But the more I've gotten into it, the more I feel like most of what cities are doing is not really moving the needle at a macro level. You tend to create good anecdotal stories or some smaller impact in various communities where you're able to incentivize or build units for folks in need or just however you define affordable. The bottom line is we need more housing at every price point, whether it's single-family homes at, at high rates to rentals and condos and townhomes in the middle to more affordable units. And I think the challenge that I've tried to uh, the way I try to address this challenge is look at it from a, a supply and demand perspective and knowing that there's a lot of other levers the city is trying to pull in traditional ways, land trusts and subsidized housing, inclusionary zoning, all these things. But I'm a big proponent of density and you know, California has fought this battle for decades. So it's a different beast in California where you are, but really trying to move our city toward out of the mindset of everyone can't live on in a single family home on a quarter acre or half acre lot. I mean, we have to live in tighter proximity to one another. It's not only more environmentally sustainable, it makes us more economically competitive. So my approach has been, and to be fair, I represent a pretty dense part of town already, but it's been to try and push our zoning code to be more inclusive of density and scale. So everything from accessory dwelling units that are attached to homes versus just detached, looking at ways we can increase density around transit stations and looking at decreasing parking requirements for residential buildings. Parking is quite expensive to build for multifamily dwellings. And we tend to overbuild parking in the South and much of the Sunbelt, which, if you can reduce it, reduces costs, the housing costs for those renting or buying. So, you know, we haven't solved it yet. We're trying to. It's not just a city issue. It's a metropolitan regional issue here, as it is, I presume, in, in Dallas and Charlotte and Denver and Phoenix, a lot of other places that have similar makeups. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you, you're right about California and the parking issue is an issue here too. Were you able to use any of the federal funds like from the ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan money or others to try to address some of this issue at all in terms of housing, maybe not on the supply side, but um, in other ways? 
So we used some, I forget the exact number amount for kind of emergency housing support, whether that was to you know, prevent uh, evictions from happening. We just dedicated a good chunk of money to eviction defense for folks who are facing eviction or landlords are trying to move folks on. But we, did, we haven't used any federal dollars to build housing, uh, as it were. But we've tried to where we, we think it's within the Treasury Department's uh, guidelines. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, yeah, I mean, it is, I feel like it was a, there was a short-term problem, right? And then, and then the longer-term problem you're talking about, the short-term problem of during the pandemic of some of those right. issues about, you know, just keeping people in their homes. And then clearly, I completely am with you, the long-term problem of supply issue. Um, and it is a problem across the country. We hear from leaders all over the country every day about this issue. So I absolutely agree with you. You know, you kind of are making me think about, you know, you've been a real proponent of, problem solving, the way you even just answered that question about kind of, you know, how you're analyzing the situation, what do you think needs to happen? That was how you talked about, again, wanting to be on the council at the beginning when you were running. It was kind of making government more effective and accessible, focusing on solutions. I was interested in, in one thing that you've been doing in that on that front. And this seemed very consistent with a lot of your career. I know you you led something called Georgia Forward, right? an organization that engages diverse stakeholders in problem solving. But you did this thing around participatory budgeting, where you engaged people in a conversation about where investments were needed in their communities. What is participatory budgeting? And then and then how has that been in those projects that you've worked on in your community? Yeah, one of the things that I've tried to do in my tenure is look for ways to build trust in government. I think, you know, there's a trust deficit across institutions in this country, whether it's with media, corporations, but especially with government. And that filters down to lack of trust with one another as well. And so, you know, one approach that I saw a few other American cities doing, it's really popular in Europe and South America is participatory budgeting, which doesn't require a city to find more money, just requires a city to say, hey, we're going to use part of our budget or part of a department's budget and let the public decide how to spend it. And so I had a little over a million dollars in funds that were dedicated largely to transportation issues, some park issues. And so instead of me deciding how it was spent or having one neighborhood to decide how it was spent, we essentially opened it up to, to the city, folks who lived in certain parts of town or spent time in it and said, how should we spend these dollars? And over a couple months, collected ideas. We had a nice little spiffy website set up where people could submit ideas and photos and then we went back to the city and said, all right, how much does this stuff cost and what's legal? <laughs> and then coming out of that, you know, we came out of it with a ballot of uh, a number of projects and let people vote. Uh, we were going to do in-person and online voting and then the pandemic hit. So we did online voting. And, you know, the fun thing about it was you were asking people to make the same hard decisions the government has to make because there's not enough money to do everything that needs to be done. And you have projects, some of which were big and pricey, some of which were very small. And as people voted, we did an approach called shopping cart voting, which was you had a million dollars and you saw these projects and their costs and you got to pick and choose and fill up your cart. And so at the end, we looked at which projects are most popular across everyone's figurative shopping cart. But what was neat was that there were a number of big projects that got voted through. But to fill up the shopping cart, you had oftentimes pick some smaller projects to fill up, use up all your money. And so, yeah, we one of my favorite projects that one was in our downtown, there's a small concrete island that separated a bike lane from a traffic lane. And someone was like, I wish this was painted yellow so people could see it. And, you know, it costs like a thousand bucks or something to do it. And that project got voted through alongside some more significant infrastructure projects like installation of wider sidewalks and bike lanes and trash cans. But, 
you know, it's a great exercise in building trust between government and its residents because the ideas are coming from residents. They get to say how the money's spent. And then the last critical piece, and this is oftentimes the toughest piece, is making sure the city executes those projects in a somewhat timely fashion so people can see their projects come to light. And we did a similar project in a park. We had a smaller pool of money and people just flocked to that project because it's a park a lot of people use in a neighborhood. We managed to get some matching funds from some nonprofits, which added to the dollars we had to spend. And you know, people come up with all sorts of creative ideas because they use the space every day and they don't feel like they're listened to and given an opportunity to see if their idea has merit and to have it voted through people really get into it. They talk to their neighbors, they campaign for their issues, it brings the community together. And if it's a bad idea, people won't vote for it. And so it's just a broader democratic approach to how we think about municipal budgeting. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think on that park one you were just talking about, right, one of the big things that got done through that was reopening bathrooms in that park that had been closed for like 20 years or something, right? Which is, I thought was just, which which was so, (laughs) like, I can just imagine being in that park and needing the restrooms, right? So I'm so glad that 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 happened. Yeah, it's a park with a ton of families and, you know, you're there with your kids, right by a playground and a pool and for decades it had been closed and the city had kind of balked on opening it and they didn't have time to go do maintenance and we got it open and the people are just beyond thrilled. That's so great. And I mean, I just love the way you're talking about this, about, you know, we do have to find ways to restore faith in government and local government often is the the place to do that, right? Because they can see it, feel it, touch it. And I'm just wondering, did you have, it sounds like a lot of people participated. Did you have to make an effort the first time to like, did people buy it that they were really going to have a say or like, what was the response when you said, we're going to do this? Yeah, so the biggest challenge is getting enough people to either A, submit ideas, but then also to vote. Because if you just leave it to natural devices, what will tend to happen are it's the same people that show up to neighborhood meetings are going to participate. Mm-hmm. And so we really worked hard. And I looked around the world, the best approaches to this, to try and bring in folks, to publicize it in front of folks, but also get them to feel like they have agency and autonomy to be in that space who don't normally interface with local government. So we set up tables outside of our MARTA train stations. We set up tables in the middle of Georgia State University, which is in our center city, where students were kind of crossing the street a bunch. We went to classes. We set up shop in kind of office building lobbies. And we reached out to groups to, to spread the word to their constituencies. And it worked. And we got, you know, we don't have a lot of people live in our downtown, which is where the, we did a, a million dollars of transportation infrastructure. And we had over 4,000 people vote on 30 some odd projects. And that was after hundred plus projects were submitted. We had to remove a bunch of them because they weren't in downtown or they weren't legal. But you know, for, we were hoping to get a thousand votes. We had over 4,000 votes. Uh, and so it's, you know, people like having a say, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, that is so great. That is so great. You've got another initiative I wanted to talk about quickly because it's just, it's not something I've seen before actually. And I thought it was super interesting. You are proposing something called a nightmare. I think to have somebody that's available kind of during the, you know, the evening hours where there's a whole, you know, economic, you know, ecosystem happening or whatever, but but I won't put words in it. You tell me what is a nightmare and and kind of what problem are you trying to solve there? Yeah, I wish it was an original idea. It's not an original idea. I think the first nightmare was in Amsterdam in the early 2000s, but a number of American cities have adopted something akin to a nightmare. They call them different things. They have different scope. You know, I, I, looked at it as Atlanta has a pretty robust nighttime economy. It's oftentimes simplified as bars and nightclubs, kind of traditional nightlife. But my view of it is more expansive. It's, you know, there's folks working in hospitals and hotels. There's 
restaurant workers who are getting to and from work. There's taxi and rideshare drivers who are out doing work, food truck drivers. So there's a whole nighttime economy that exists that we don't really think about when we think about our economy. And it touches every aspect of city making, whether it's how public space is used, how we allocate public safety resources, is our infrastructure serving the needs at night, are police and and other services allocating their resources based on what's happening at night. So really someone who would wake up every day or stay up every night thinking about those issues and working with stakeholders to solve problems. DC has a really robust night office. I think Orlando had a really good one for a while. I'm not sure they still have it. Our current mayor has put in place someone really in response to a spiking crime associated with nighttime activity around nightclubs, someone who really worked with the nightclub and bar industry to kind of improve safety outside establishments and with establishments. I'm trying to push him to expand that role to be more kind of holistic about what happens at night. But, you know, like a lot of big cities, we tend not to think about what happens after eight o'clock other than, you know, is the bar quiet enough and are the police where they need to be? But there's a lot that happens and it's a significant part of our economy. And as the city grows, uh, an increasing part of our economy. And so are we maximizing opportunities for entrepreneurs to work at night or to start a business that affects the nighttime? Are we making sure that workers can get to and from based on transit schedules or access to, to ride share and things like that? So it's, it's just another way to think about what happens in a city and how we get ahead of problems and solve them proactively. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, you are a city council member, like a lot who, you know, obviously for most city council members, it's not full time. You have a, you have a day job as well, right? And you work at CARE. I think you just got a big promotion, which I want to hear about. Congratulations on that. I'd love to just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about, about what CARE does, what you do there, and also kind of both, you know, how it is to balance a, you know, a job that's a big job with serving in public life. And also, you know, you work in a space that is actually dovetails nicely with public service, right? Combating poverty. So love to hear how kind of your, the two inform each other, if you will. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to have the opportunity to balance both roles. Uh, it takes an employer who is flexible and I'm lucky I have a, a flexible employer I realized when you got an kind of office, you either have to be a solo practitioner, you know, you're a lawyer, an accountant, you have your own practice, or you work at a big enough entity, but they don't depend on you to keep the lights on every day and they're, they're flexible with you. And I, I'm lucky to have uh, the second. But I care, uh, the best way to get people's eyebrows to, to rise when I mentioned care is to actually note that the term care package actually comes from, from care. After World War II, care was formed and sent packages to post-war Germany with a whole bunch of foodstuffs and toys and things for families who were recovering from the war. And so that's where the term care package comes from. I mean, that was 75, 76 years ago. And today care continues to do work around the world in over hundred countries. Um, some of it's just emergency response, but a lot, most of it's fighting poverty really through the lens of lifting up women, whether it's through women farmers, entrepreneurs, public health initiatives, and it wasn't until the pandemic hit that CARE decided to do some domestic programming. So for the first time in its history, the last couple of years, we've been doing some domestic work. And my new role is to oversee all of our domestic programs, which to date have been really in two buckets. One is emergency response. First, it was kind of pandemic care packages to first responders. But then we started partnering with local nonprofits in areas that were hit by uh, natural disasters. So in Houston and the Gulf, after some hurricanes, we've done work there providing housing and food and cash assistance and similar in Kentucky after a tornado there. 
And then we do some group savings work with women and men who want to start their own business, a kind of small scale approach that we do at a really big scale around the world. We're trying to see if it works here in the U.S. as well. That's so great. And I mean, I did not know the care package story. I'm familiar with care and I did not know that. So that's, that's it is kind of eyebrow raising and cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's enormous brand equity that we're like, why are we capitalizing on this? But uh, so we're working on making sure that most Americans realize the care package is associated with care. That is so cool. That is so cool. And so, you know, poverty is something that you have thought about at the city council level too, of course. And in fact, I think that you are, have started one of the, or the biggest guaranteed income pilot in the South focused on, why don't you tell us about that and tell us, you know, how that's working. I represent a part of town that's dense, progressive, increasingly affluent, but it retains the largest community of Section 8 residents in the South, 1,100 residents who live really within a few blocks of one another. And it occurred to me, while Atlanta talks a lot about its poor economic mobility, we have one of the lowest economic mobility rates in the country. If you're born poor, you're almost certain to remain poor in Atlanta. We don't really talk a lot about economic insecurity, which is also very present for a number of our residents. And looking around the country, you know, obviously saw a number of pilot programs doing cash transfer, guaranteed income work, and launched a task force here to look at whether that was an approach we want to try in this part of the neighborhood. And long story short, spun a nonprofit out of my office because there was enormous interest in it. And we raised $15 million plus to actually run a a guaranteed income program for Black women in three parts of the state, in this one neighborhood I represent, in a suburban neighborhood, and then in three rural counties in Southwest Georgia, near the Alabama-Georgia border. And so that's all kicked off this year. The women are receiving $850 a month for two years. And then there's a group of women as well receiving a lump sum payment upfront of $4,000 and then $750 a month for two years. The reason being is we heard from additional participants was if you're on benefits, housing, SNAP, whatever it may be, you are typically prohibited from saving over a certain amount. So it's very difficult to make a large purchase or to make a big life change. And we said, let's test this. If you give folks a lump sum payment up front, do they leave the neighborhood? Do they buy a car? Do they enroll in the class? So we have a huge qualitative and quantitative study going alongside the work. But ultimately, it's about, can you create some basic decency an agency for many of our most vulnerable Atlantans and Georgians and um, excited to see what, what we learned from it. Yeah, I'm excited to see too, you know, and it is, it's an interesting approach, right? I have to be perfectly honest that in the past I've been, you know, I haven't known how I felt about guaranteed income programs, to be honest with you. And I think in part, you know, because, you know, I know that a lot of people would say that they want to, you know, is that, I don't know, just it feels like, you know, in other ways we talk about that is in terms of encouraging work or whatever instead. But the thing that I'm interested in that you and some other new dealers have done around the country is, is kind of acknowledging that it's kind of the gap, right, between what you can earn while you're working <laughs> or if you're not working a traditional job, right? If you are staying home, taking care of a child or taking care of a parent or these, these other things that are absolutely working, but not in the traditional way we've defined work right in the past and, you know, and then supplementing, you know, or paying people to do that so that they can, you know, have that stability and have the ability to save and have that upward mobility. So I'm just, you know, maybe as a follow-up question for people who are skeptical about guaranteed income plans, and I'm excited to see the results you have because what I've seen actually in some of the ones around the country have been really promising. You know, what do you tell people who are skeptical of, of this? Yeah, the first thing I'll say is, you know, it is, uh, and this is statistically true across not just our 
most vulnerable and poorest Americans, but across the middle class as well, is that it's harder and harder to make ends meet in this country, no matter how many jobs you have, right? Whether it's inflation or just general creep of education, housing, healthcare costs, you know, economic security is less and less attainable for millions of Americans. And I will say, I think our program's fundraising success was in part because it coincided with the pandemic where the mindset around receiving cash transfer payments changed because millions of people were receiving federal relief dollars that normally would not have considered themselves vulnerable, right? Yeah. That was part of it. We're also in the neighborhood where Dr. King was born and preached and he called for guaranteed income. So there's a nice narrative arc, the work we're doing here. But your first skepticism was the most common one, which is if you give people money, they're not going to work. And I always say to folks, if someone gave you 800 bucks a month, would you stop working? And the answer is almost inevitably no. And studies have shown what happens isn't that people stop working with one exception, which I'll mention in a minute, but that it frees up people to actually pursue jobs and careers that they've always wanted to do. And they're not just running out to the local fast food restaurant to, to make ends meet, which is what we want. We want people to have stable, long-term careers. It's better for their kids and families. It's better for our tax base. It's better for the stability of neighborhoods. And studies have shown that the only, going back to my caveat, the only folks who work less when they receive a cash transfer payment, and not all of them do this, but are folks who are caretakers, right? Where they're caretaking for, as you mentioned, for an elderly parent or for a child. And that's frankly unpaid labor in this country that has enormous social value. We all, we all know that unpaid labor and caretaking is critically important, but it's hard to do it if you don't have the resources to do it. So you know, I think you know, the, the individuals who are receiving these dollars, they are working. The question is, are they, are they on a track to build a career and a job pathway that allows them to potentially stabilize themselves and not worry about having a roof over their head every night? And so I think the other piece to this is, which is potentially promising, I think it resonates with folks is whether or not you think a cash transfer framework is a smart one for the long term so that everyone in a certain demographic group gets a certain amount of money every month. I think there's a, given what we've been through the last few years, there's an argument to be made that cash relief is a really effective emergency response, whether it's to a pandemic or economic collapse that I think a lot of Americans kind of intellectually see and feel having been through what we just been through. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the kind of the context has changed in a way that makes people kind of understand it better. I agree with that. Thanks for walking me through that. I want to end, Amir, to kind of just as, again, this is an audible profession. And I love to, you know, we love to talk to people about kind of their path into public service. And you have such an interesting story yourself. I mean, you're an eighth generation Georgian on your mom's side and your father immigrated from Iran in like I think the late 60s. You're the first Iranian American to run for office in Atlanta and the first elected in the South. And I'm just curious kind of about, you know, how your upbringing and how your family, you know, may have influenced your path into deciding that you wanted to run, you know, to go into public service or run for office. Yeah. So I grew up in a, a house with parents from two very different backgrounds, as you just indicated. I always joke that my childhood was one of you know, one of the few people who ate grits sitting on a Persian rug, right? So it's like the, the mix <laughs> of Southern and, and Persian. But both my parents were in education and both of them were very civically active. My dad is actually a political science professor. So I kind of grew up around politics and both my parents, for whatever reason, never were jaded by it and believed it was a way to do good for your community and to um, to make a difference. So I, I think I was shaped by their view, uh, certainly. And I chose to run for city council out of the gate because I, I think cities are in many ways the most nimble, agile, less partisan form of government where you can actually get stuff done. And sometimes that's proven true. Other times it's proven not true, but 
that's what drew me to it a bit, as well as just Atlanta being a great city and wanting to help shape its next chapter. You had another part of your question, which I just forgot, other than my upbringing. Yeah, no, no, that was really kind of my question. And I mean, I guess I'll add just the question of so, and it's interesting, because I think it's, you know, hearing as a child, right, you know, if public service is valued in your house, right, that makes sense that that's kind of something that that you might you might kind of, you know, tend to gravitate toward. Was there a moment for you where, I mean, like, did you always know that would actually look like elected office? Or was there a moment where you thought this is the time I want to run for office and this is why, you know? Yeah, I think it's always been an interest of mine since I was young. There wasn't one seminal moment or event where I was like, God, this is going to, this is motivating me to run, right? I didn't run on one issue or in response to one moment as some people do. And that's a perfectly valid reason to run. In fact, I think you get many candidates in response to incidences or events that normally would never have considered running. And that's really good for democratic, the health of our democracy. I, I think it's good to have people who normally wouldn't consider themselves candidates to get up and run. You know, I think for me, it was just a long-term interest. And, you know, I interned for a senator on Capitol Hill during college and interned for a city council member one summer. And so, you know, kind of danced around it. There's times when I would ask myself, do I really want to be a candidate? Uh, there's lots of ways to make an impact in one's community and in one's country. And, you know, it doesn't have to be politics. But I, I wanted to give it a shot. The first time I ran, I lost. I, I ran for a citywide city council seat in 2009, lost in a runoff. And really just enjoyed the process and got a lot of energy from talking to people and knocking on doors. And it just made me happy and gave another shot eight years later in 2017, which is when I won the seat I currently sit in. And it's been, you know, it's been a really rewarding and at times trying, but always rewarding experience. And so I'm, I'm glad I decided to run. Me too. <laughs> I'm glad you decided to run. And I, you know, thank you, Amir, for being with me today. And thanks for just all the great work you're doing. I mean, so many of the issues that we talked about here and all eyes are going to be on Georgia and Atlanta this election year. So we'll be watching both from a political perspective, but also again, uh, you know, we run for office so that we can do good things as you were talking about. So watching all the great initiatives that you're championing. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you, Debbie. And thank you to New Deal for being such a wonderful network and support system. I think there's always so much brilliance and inspiration and good ideas from the group. And I'm just really honored to be part of the group and to be part of this call today. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.